Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 15th, 2010, and my guest is Pete Betke of George Mason University. Pete, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is Ludwig von Mises, and I hope this might become a model for other podcasts that we'll do down the road. What I want to do is introduce listeners who are unfamiliar with Mises <clears throat> to his key ideas, uh, his key works, and then how someone who doesn't know much about him or about his works, how you might um, – where would you start? So let's – you and I start, Pete, with the key ideas. Why is Mises important? Tell us a little bit about his life and his contributions to economics. Uh, well, I mean, Mises is uh, uh, sort of the key – uh, figure in early part of the 20th century in maintaining and reviving uh, the classical liberal uh, perspective in political economy, um, his developments in the science of economics um, that fed into uh, that defense of the laissez-faire uh, system. Um, he he became uh, the leading representative of the modern Austrian school of economics. Uh, he was a great teacher of economics over in Vienna, uh, where he was teaching at the University of Vienna. While he also had a position at the uh, cha- what would be we, we would call the Chamber of Commerce um, there, uh, he held, held a position as well as at the university. His students were uh, some of the leading economists in the immigration after they immigrated to the United States. Uh, people like Fritz Machlup and Gottfried Hobbler and, of course, uh, F.A. Hayek, who was his uh, most prominent student. So when did he come to the United States? He um, first moved from out of Vienna to Geneva, where he taught, and then he moved to the United States in 1940. So, and came to? He ended up by teaching at New York University from around 1944 until 1969, I believe. What was he doing between 40 and 44? He, just he worked in New York City and was a research economist, and I held a position at the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER. Uh-huh. And he wrote two books during that time, Omnipotent Government and Bureaucracy, um, which were on that uh, his fellowship with NBER. Um, and then he started teaching at New York University's business school, um, where he taught then from there until the end of his teaching career. And he had many influential students in the United States as well, right? Well, yes. I mean, he had influential students both um, technically that went on to become teachers and develop other people within the sort of market-oriented movement, um, scientific teachers, and then uh, to his two most sort of famous students, one of in the United States period, one would be Israel Kirzner. Um, the other one is not technically a student in the sense that he got his PhD from Columbia, but was very much influenced as Murray Rothbart. And both Kirzner and Rothbart were sort of the leading uh, developers of Austrian economics in America. Um, and uh, so Mises had a continuing influence in that regard, especially in the discipline of economics, because by the time 
that those guys are getting their PhDs and developing their uh, unique ideas. Hayek had moved to the from London School of Economics to the University of Chicago, but at the University of Chicago, he wasn't really doing technical economics anymore. He was doing more f political philosophy, philosophy yeah. legal philosophy. Yeah. So let's talk about Mises' work. Uh, so, so what you've said so far, he was an extremely influential teacher uh, and represented an important a figure in the development of modern Austrian theory. What was important about his economics work, his work in, in economics per se? Well, I mean, I think that Mises is, a, is one of the last uh, sort of, well, he's a real generalist uh, as opposed to a specific uh, contribution, which I'll get to in a second because I, I believe he made very significant specific contributions as well. But he wrote covering the entire area of economics in the same way that maybe Samuelson uh, did as well for mathematical economics. Mises did for uh, sort of what you might call logical economics. Um, and uh, you say I mean, logical economics, you mean the intuition of how market forces interact. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I, what I mean by that is uh, mainly the most people, most people like to think they do logical economics as opposed <laughs> to the alternative. Although we, you know, we might disagree on who does. People might disagree about who does which kind. But. I mean, Mises contrasts the notion of logical economics from mathematical economics, which were, you know, alternatives at the time okay. that were being developed, and that's sort of what I mean by that language. But uh, I think it's important to recognize that Mises. Um, Despite the fact that he was always a little bit out of step with the way the profession, to say the you know the least, uh, you know uh, about that, um, but he also was recognized. He was the distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association in 1969. He um, was, in fact, uh, you know there was a large segment of people trying to push to get him the first Nobel Prize in economics. Um, I mean, he won the highest uh, Medal of Honor for a scientific accomplishment from his own host, uh, home country in in Austria. So it's it's not like he was uh, completely out of step. And not recognized when his books came out, when his famous, most famous book uh, came out, Human Action, it was reviewed in the pages of the New York Times by John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, now, Galbraith was a young man at the time, but he still was John Kenneth Galbraith, and people, you know, knew who he was. Uh, and it was in the New York Times. Very few of us could ever get one yeah. of our books reviewed in the New York Times. You know, Mises' books, when they first were published in the United States, uh, they were published by Yale University Press. Um, you know, so he was very much a kind of a major player in the economics profession, um, going all the way back to when he was in Vienna. Um, the economics profession was a little different than it is now, and, and so and Mises did have his very, very severe difficulties. Um, There's a wonderful biography, very long biography. I don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's extremely good work and very much worth reading, uh, which is by Guido Holzman uh, called The Last Night of Liberalism, which is about Mises. And then, of course, there's a uh, both Mises himself and his wife wrote uh, stories of, of his life, uh, his, his, his wife, Margit, wrote a book called My Life with Ludwig von Mises, and Mises himself wrote a book called Notes and Recollections, which is more about his Vienna period. Than, uh, that. So, so we can learn a lot about Mises, the person, and, and, uh, and his struggles and whatnot. And he did have very heroic struggles. On his ideas, I would say that you know, he made contributions to monetary theory which was his original work, um, which is the development of the Austrian theory of the business cycle. 
Um, Mises, as Mises uh, sometimes would say, he didn't understand why people called it the Austrian uh, theory of the business cycle. He said the only people who are adherent to it is a Swede. Vixel and one Austrian, him, Mises. So, you know, he didn't understand, but he, he liked the fact that they, you know, people would call it that. But he developed this theory which focuses on how the interest rate mechanism can, through cr- manipulation of money and credit, can mislead investors and you can generate the boom and bust cycle through manipulation of money and credit. And that really was his development of that and, and, and more other works in monetary economics was his first major contribution in a book called Theory of Money and Credit. When, when did that come out? It originally came out in 1912. Um, he received his PhD in 1906. Um, and uh, this, you know, he was a student of Bombavric and it was part of the Bombavric seminar. And he, he developed the idea of integrating uh, basically, he was a he was a first mover in the micro foundations <laughs> idea. So, if you think about economics, it's a neo Austrian, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you think about economics back in that time, uh, you had monetary courses, and then you had your economics courses, which is relative prices, right? What we would call micro. Today. What we call microeconomics. There was no such thing as macro economics, but there was money economics, monetary economics, which was not necessarily always integrated with what you learned in microeconomics. And what like today. And what Mises <laughs> did was he integrated microeconomics to address uh, microeconomics with the monetary economics. And then coming out of that led to this development of how the manipulation of money and credit can influence the pr- a price, a relative price, in this case the interest rate, and guide people the wrong way for some period of time, and then you get a self-correction mechanism, all right? So you have a distortion, then a correction, and that explains the boom and the bust cycle. And so in, in, in that sense, Mises' theory of the business cycle is a price-theoretic theory of the trade cycle. Yeah. So let me ask you a pause for a moment in discussing his contribution because I want to I want to ask you a history of economic thought question related to that uh, business cycle work. So Hayek is his student. Yeah. And Hayek's important work on the business cycle in the 30s is what? What is his what does he write? Well, I mean Hayek starts in the 1920s working on the problem of imputation which is you know the idea of how is it the value of capital goods derived from the consumer goods they go to satisfy and how is that value flows up through that chain that's the value is imputed right okay. back so that's so he originally worked on that which is the nature of intertemporal coordination right how is it that we get information to build cars for people that will consume those cars 10 years from now. But people right now are working on designs and whatnot. How is that not just a mess, right? Well, there's signals that flow back so that people get businessmen rely on to be able to justify those investments. And Hayek worked on that problem, which means that he started working on capital theory. And then what happened is, is that he goes to work for Mises. He, he technically wasn't, uh, you know, Mises' student. He was a Wieser student at the university, though. Wieser was an economist. He, he was at University of Vienna okay. as well. And uh, that's who, you know, was his thesis advisor and whatnot. And, uh, but we have Hayek's. We have a picture now of Hayek's uh, report card, and we do know that the way they did it at the University of Vienna, people would sign off on the grades, and Mises did sign off on a grade. So he, he did have Mises in some form as a teacher. Supervisor or teacher, but, whatever. Yeah. 
he never remembers it, and Mises doesn't remember it really. But it's and, the influence that really. Yeah, we call him when we call him Mises' student. It's because of the influence that. Well, his it's ideas because had. it's because what happened was he goes to work for him at the Austrian oh. Institute for Business Cycle Research. Okay. Well, he goes to work for him at the Chamber of Commerce, which is what year? What are we in now, roughly? Uh, mid mid to early twenties. So the world's booming at. Yeah, and what happens is Hayek, Mises arranges to help Hayek get a research fellowship to come to the United States. Uh, Mises, again, going back to the early thing, was very much um, uh, respected and was involved with a version of the Rockefeller Foundation that tried to support European intellectuals getting coming to the United States and studying with people here. And... Um, and uh, so uh, Hayek went to uh, Columbia University where he worked uh, with uh, uh, Wesley Clare Mitchell. Uh, early 20s. chronicler of the business cycle. Yeah, early chronicler Important of the business cycle. figure in that. And they were developing at Columbia the idea of time series analysis um, to study business cycles, statistical approach to business cycles. And so Hayek went there and then uh, came back. Uh, to, to, Austria. to Austria, and then he went to work with Mises um, at the, uh, the what the Chamber of Commerce, and then eventually Mises and Hayek started an institute called the Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research, and Hayek became the director of that, and then they started these studies, and they started to study the boom and bust cycle, and and. People claim, a lot of people claim, you know, but I have, like a lot of things, a broken clock gets the time right twice a day. So if you take a sort of, oh, wow, this inflation's going to cause a recession or whatnot, then it happens and you say, ah, see, you know. They were geniuses. Yeah, but I mean, it is definitely the case that their theory sort of pointed out that the manipulation of money and credit would have a cost to it. And they developed this idea to, to, to back up a bit and to get a little bit technical, but push me off of it if it's too much, is that. What's kind of interesting is at the time that Mises starts out developing his monetary theories, we have two different competing ideas. One of them is that there's no connection between the supply of money and the prices in an economy. These are what Mises calls monetary cranks. In monetary cranks, the problem is a lot of times there's there you look at the world and you see people that are poor and you say, oh, they lack money. Let's print money and give it to them. You know that will fix our poverty poverty problem. And um, and then there's the other types, which are the quantity theory. Right, which is that if you double the money supply, you're going to double the price level. That's Irving Fisher. That's Irving Fisher. Different and it's, kind of crank, but yeah, pretty respected. No, guy. totally. <laughs> and and in fact, the quantity theory is one of the most important yeah. ideas because you know basically. Um, uh, you know, if you if you're you're not going to make everyone better off by printing money, right? You, yeah. You're just going to make uh, prices go prices up. go up, and so there is a relationship between the you know the quantity of money and and, um, and the price price level in the economy. And what Mises does is he says, okay, you know, he defends the quantity theory, but he argues that we can't have a mechanical interpretation of the quantity theory. So the classical dichotomy. So the classical economists argued that reals only affect reals and nominals only affect nominals. And this is that that means that real things matter and really determine the quality of our life. Things like the number you attach to the price of something isn't so important if your wages are also higher. If both prices and wages are higher, your standard of living is unchanged. So you wouldn't expect printing money. 
to necessarily impoverish or enrich. It's going to eventually be right. washed out by the real underlying things. Yeah. I tell all my students that, look, um, the only way to increase real income is to increase real productivity. Yeah, and the way to increase real productivity is to increase your human capital, increase the machinery Knowledge, that you're working with, yeah. or increase the managerial talent that pools or you know does that, right? And so that's a sort of a bottom line. You want to increase real productivity in an economy. That's what the source is of generating real income increases. Mises doesn't deny that, but what he argues is that if we don't take a the quantity theory of money viewed mechanically underestimates the distortionary consequences of inflation because it's it's as if as soon as I double the money supply, prices are going to double instantly, and then of course there won't be these consequences. With the only cost of inflation is that you menu re- cost. You got to change the numbers. You got to change the, the numbers around. So Mises wanted to show that, and this is a great innovation on his part, was that because of injection effects and the way that prices move through any economy, they adjust through relative price changes, not a whole price level change. Eventually, it works out to be the math is going to work out that way. You double the money supply, eventually all prices in the economy are going to adjust. But the, the short fir- run, the short run, intermediate so, so Mises is showing that in the short run, there can be appear to be a case in which an effect on a nominal variable can have a real impact. Because you distort your choices and how you allocate your resources. And that's what sets up the business cycle. Right. So, and we still have this debate today because sure. the arguments about real business cycles and all that stuff are, yeah, are all connected up with these debates. And Mises was really at the core of that. And Hayek was right with him. They were partners. I have a picture in my office of Hayek and Mises working together. And I have always viewed this sort of Austrian tradition as one of a Mises Hayek tradition, even though there's subtle and profound differences between the two of them. And it would be foolish for me to deny that as a matter of, history of ideas, but as a a contemporary person working in the Austrian tradition, I view it as the Mises and Hayek tradition, and I always tell the students, what you should do is read Mises as a Hayekian. What I mean by that is read Mises looking for all the emphasis on spontaneous order and invisible hand, and read Hayek as a Misesian, in which what you're doing is seeing in Hayek the logic of choice, uh, the sort of, yeah, and all these things. And when you do that, that combined reading, then you end up by seeing how it is that we can actually change the way we think about economics today but let, let me just I got, you, I got you off track but I want to stay on that track because I want to get to a question I'm really driving at which is Mises in 1912 writes the theory of money and credit the world he gets linked up with Hayek in the 20s at a time when the world's booming the bust comes with the Great Depression whether they foresaw it or not as you say it's right. always uncertain but they certainly had a framework for interpreting it as the as the result of an excessive boom driven by cheap money, too much, uh, too low interest rates that were too low, distorted choices, et cetera. What was Hayek's major work in that period on the business cycle? Well, he wrote a book called Monetary Theory in the Trade Cycle. Which when is a, did that come out? Um, the German edition of that is in the 20s. And Keynes um, reviews it. Is that the book that Keynes? No, no. no so Keynes reviews the theory of money and credit. Or when? Well, the theory of money and credit Keynes reviews and says that he can't really judge how good it is because he only knows what German he already knows. And then he says it doesn't say anything new <laughs> in the book. The reason, uh, the reason I'm asking these questions is I'm curious as a history of economic thought and intellectual thought question, why is it that in the 30s, 
it's Hayek who's sparring with Keynes and not Mises and not Mises. That's a it's that's a, what I was. That's yeah, what I'm okay, it's at. a great question, um, and that's it, what the world looks back at and remembers. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's fascinating about that story is that during the 1920s, Mises' seminar in Vienna, in which Hayek is a major participant, becomes a world-renowned center for economic scholarship. Frank Knight speaks in it, you know, a lot of different people is come. Schumpeter, where's Schumpeter? Schumpeter's in this story? part of it, but they're not. Schumpeter and Mises were classmates in, and then, but, and Schumpeter's kind of a shining star, but then as, as, as often referred to the infant terrible of the Austrian school, cause he kind of rejects the teachings of his, of the school and then becomes more of Alrasian and it becomes his own thing. He does his own thing and it becomes complicated. But what's fascinating is, is that one of those people that came and participated in the Mises seminar is Lionel Robbins. And who's at the LSE LSE. and Lionel Robbins goes back to the LSE and he wants to take what he learned in the Mises seminar and bring it to the London School of Economics. He writes The Nature and Significance of, of Economics. What year is um, that? Year it comes out in 32, I think, or 33, okay. somewhere around that. But uh, but he's already working on these ideas. He's defending a lot of the Mises positions. Um, one of the things that we're skipping over here is that Mises is simultaneously involved in a debate over socialism as well, we're which I'd like, to, to, which I'd like to, to come back to. <laughs> we will get to that. Um, but uh, so Robbins. I just said it was probably going to be a three hour podcast. Yes. So sit tight, <laughs> curl up with something like a thing of hot chocolate on, those, on these winter nights, and uh, we hope you're, you're uh, along for the ride. Keep going. It's not really going to be three hours. That was a joke. Go ahead. But Mises is. Um uh, or anyway, Robbins gets himself situated at the LSE, and what happens is he brings Hayek over, and Hayek um, produces uh, his set of lectures called Prices and Production, right. and that becomes this sort of famous where everyone becomes a Hayekian when he gives these the lectures, LSE. and that's in 1931. Um, that he gives those lectures. Uh, one of the great thrills of my life is that I actually gave a Hayek Memorial lecture at the LSE in 2004, and I got to, I was told I gave it on the same stage that Hayek gave his prices and production lecture. I don't know if that's true. Someone okay, told me that, but it, it, that's my story. Doesn't I'm sticking matter. with yeah, it. Good. And, I, and it was awesome um, to do. And uh, But Hayek... Um, I think, you know, the answer to your question is at this time, not many of Mises' writings are in English. Uh-huh. And Hayek is starting to write in English audiences. Mises is, uh, uh, the, he writes another book in the late 20s called uh, On the Manipulation of Money and Credit, which is a very detailed discussion of the business cycle and whatnot. A more mature discussion than, let's say, he had just in the theory of money and credit. But neither the theory of money and credit nor the manipulation of money and credit are translated into English yet. Um, and so he's still a German language scholar. Uh-huh. Uh, even when he goes to Switzerland in the, in the, in the, in the excuse me, and goes to, uh, yeah, uh, Switzerland in the 30s, he's writing in German. He's not writing in English, right? It's not until you get a little later that you start seeing uh, Mises' you know, transition into an English language economist. So Hayek is the English language representative Alter, yeah, of the, the Austrian, Austrian school. school. Plus, he's a young man, he's in his very 30s, and he's obviously very bright and talented, and he becomes a kind of, you know, focal point for the anti-Keynesian argument. And that was not only in academics, but also, you know, remember in the 30s, Hayek is writing in the Times of London, and he's joined by Robbins, and I really do think that 
you know, Lionel Robbins plays a major role in that intellectual history because um, he and Hayek have a very strong notion that this upstart LSE school is going to take on the Oxbridge orthodoxy in the English language of economics, and they get their own journal and, and things like that. And the real irony in Hayek's story is that uh, – and that, by the way, the Hayek story is a great name that Hicks gave to this period of time. Uh, Hicks wrote an article called The Hayek Story, and he says – he says, when the definitive history of the 1930s get to be written, and what a drama it was, one of the main characters will be F.A. Hayek, because at the time, none of us knew who was right, Hayek or Keynes. And now it's, we know. And, yeah, well, he According was writing at the time that you knew, and now we're back to the same thing. So, you know, I go back to your, you know, rap video, and, you know, you say we've been battling back and forth for a century, you know. Right. That's still actually going. true. And yeah, it's still, it's still going. going. So, so Hayek becomes the representative of the Misesian position in the English language world, as does Robbins. So Robbins becomes the defender of Mises' position on methodology, and Hayek becomes a defender of Mises' position on substantive economics, both in terms of the business cycle and Austrian capital theory and monetary theory and then its integration into the Austrian business cycle theory, but also on the debate with socialism. So, you know, Mises, in, in some sense, you know, Hayek is, is very different from Mises, but he's also in a large way his greatest student in the sense that he picks up the Misesian positions in the debate in the English language world. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Uh, I'm curious, just as a historical footnote, Mises was Jewish. Yeah. He's in Austria at a time when we're talking about the mid 30s when Hitler is on the rise in Germany. There's talk of unification of Austria and, and Germany, and it was not a good time to be a Jew in either place. Did he have personal issues with, with anti Semitism and fear of, of Nazism? I assume that's what pushed him to Switzerland and the United States. Did it also affect his his ability to work given uh, what was going on in the universities? Yes, I mean that's. But this goes back even deeper uh, to uh, in the twenties. You know, so the standard argument. Mises again, the Holzman biography and also notes and recollections and and uh, Mrs. Mises's book are very useful for people to look at on this. Um, but the standard story is is that uh, you know Mises was second in line a lot of times for some major appointments at the university. Uh, so it's not that he wasn't considered for the positions, but he would be considered for a, like a big chair and then come no, in second. Didn't not, quite get it. Didn't yeah. quite get it. But it's not that he wasn't considered at all. And the argument was is that a man of his stature, you know, should have gotten those things. A man of his accomplishment, you know, which is an obvious argument that seems to be true. And the argument that people say in retrospect is that, look, the problem was is that Mises was, one, a uh, classical liberal. Um, two, he was a very strident debate partner. So right. it's not like he backed off in right. debates or tried to be he wasn't he wasn't milly mouth, right? Yeah. And then three, he was a Jew. And the argument is is that you could survive if you only had two of these, but you could never survive all the way through if you had all three. So that handicapped some of his professional accomplishments in his career in the say in the twenties, but in that crucial period I'm thinking of the say thirty three, where Hitler comes to power in Germany from thirty three on 
uh, a Jewish scholar in Austria must yes. have been a little bit uncomfortable. Well, it's, it's increasingly a fa- uncomfortable. It's, Russ, it's a fascinating story, and uh, you, you know it's been uh, sort of immortalized in a DC Comics oh, yeah. uh, because uh, what happens is is Mises's library gets confiscated. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so his library is confiscated, and then eventually by the Nazis. What year are we in now? In the 30s. Uh-huh. In the, and then what happens is that when the Nazis are taken over, then his library is, is reconfiscated by the Soviets. And so then what happened when communism collapsed was his library was discovered over in Moscow, hmm. and people like Richard Ebeling and uh, some other scholars have been wor- worked in those papers, discovered those papers. And in fact, Ebeling was with Liberty Fund, has brought out uh, the selected work. So along with the collected works of Mises, which Liberty Fund has been doing, um, the selected works of Ludwig von Mises are, are made up. Many of those papers are papers that Richard Ebeling discovered when he was over in Moscow and does the editing for. And I, I ask that because I just wonder what role that historical episode it played in his being less of a voice relative to Hayek. So part of it was Hayek was was writing and speaking in English yeah. and was physically in England though whereas Mises was stuck in Austria at a time when he was worried about his life right. and really wasn't as I assume academically engaged and as productive well, as Well, he, he left to go to to Geneva. But even Geneva is not LSE. So, you know, Mises made choices of where he went. Now, those were the options. He had, during the period of time in the, in the 1930s when he was in Geneva, um, that, that is a period of, of, uh, tremendous productivity for him research-wise. Okay. And he writes the first edition of what later becomes Human Action. It's published in German in 1940. Bad timing for a book to come out, yeah. a weighty scholarly book as well, um, and published in German. So again, his audience is limited and, and whatnot compared to what he would reach when he comes to the United States. So it just so happens, I think, that Hayek, if you look at Mises' as students, you got Hayek going to the London School of Economics. You have Machlup being able to go to... Uh, eventually end up teaching at, at, at Johns Hopkins and then at Princeton. You have uh, Hobbler going to Harvard. You have um, uh, Morgenstern uh, going to, to Princeton, uh, right? I mean, so his students and the people around him, even even someone like Alfred Schutz, who was a sociologist who worked with him, went to the New School for Social Research in New York City. Those were our, our bigger positions in some sense to launch your academic ideas from than the uh, college in, in, in Switzerland that he was teaching at. But his story, again, of escaping from Vienna to go to Switzerland and then from Switzerland to come to the United States is, you know, a great drama, one of, of personal uh, high-risk stakes and, and all of these kind of issues uh, that makes Mises an extremely uh, compelling character to study and to learn about and well, let's, stuff. But let's get back to the idea. Yeah. So where we got – we started with with this, his contribution to trade cycle theory. It, was, it used to be called trade cycle theory. Now we call it business cycle theory, the boom and the bust cycle. So he, he starts that in 1912, revises it in the 20s, and then influences a whole cadre of scholars who in English push those ideas obviously with their own twists right. and, and permutations but and variations. But – so that's one important contribution he made intellectually was the was the modernization of Austria and really the creation of 
what's now called Austrian business cycle theory. Right. Give us what else he's important for. Well, calculation in, debate was I think, right what we're doing in 1919. He publishes a book called Nation, State, and Economy, which is his uh, criticism of the war, and in particular his examination of war planning. Uh, during uh, World War One, um, that is then followed up with the because at the time, see one of the big things that that was in the zeitgeist at the time was that war planning was a model for peacetime because it proved to be so efficient during yeah, war wartime. Okay? <laughs> Same zeitgeist that got created after World War Two. Yes, yeah, and uh, and, uh, and and uh, because of the Great Depression, right? Milton Friedman has a great line where he says. You know, people believe the Great Depression did two things. The Great Depression and World War II did two things. One of them, it demonstrated that free markets are unstable. And two, that government planning, you know, can actually work. And therefore, we're going to look. Because D-Day, yes. they got on the beach and they, right. they, they were successful. And, and so, uh, so, you know, I think that that zeitgeist is already in the air. Mises, um, you know, and this wonderful book, Nation, State, and Economy. That, that, that quote from Friedman was how we, people perceived the Great yes, Depression that's, that's right. what he believed. No, no, he argues that's the thing that we have to a- uh, argue against. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's go a, ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So make but, that clear. But, uh, okay, so, but, uh, so when we're... Uh, 1919. So we're in 1919. At the time, uh, especially a, a, a one a gentleman who was Mises' classmate uh, in, in Bambavrik seminars, a man named Otto Norath, and he was developing the ideas. So people's faith in capitalism is shredded and, and you know, well, because, those... Because we've had this... Post World War One, yeah, crisis, a lot of poverty, civilization is collapsing. There's you revolution know. in the air, both yeah. in Russia and Weimar Republic's getting started, right. and there's problems, and right? And so hyperinflation's soon, right, hyperinflation's, soon. and so Otto Norath believes that uh, you could have what's a Marxian idea of a natural economy, and that the by eliminating uh, production for exchange and substituting the only production for direct use, you know, you could actually have a burst of productivity, eliminate the uh, uh, the the sort of class warfare, and and uh, lift the uh, average man into a new world order. And and uh, you know, Mises picks up pen. Uh, to paper in this debate, and he points out, he says, "This is a," as he says in one of his books, he says, um, "Socialism we have to admit is one of the grandest ideas of all of mankind, and and you know we have to deal with it in the utmost seriousness." And he does, and and he uh, writes a paper uh, called "Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth" in 1920. And in that paper, what he identifies is what he believes to be, and, and I agree with him on this, but what he believes to be the linchpin argument against socialism. And it's not just that the um, socialists would not have the incentives to be able to do what's right because in your debate partners, one of the things I think is important to remember in these discussions is you know, your debate partners. So one of the assumptions that the socialists were making was that when you change the nature of the institutional structure, you would change the nature of the human beings that populated that world. So you would get a socialist man. Who'd have different, even though the incentives that capitalism or man is used to wouldn't be there, right. he'd have the higher ideals that would motivate him right. to do for the common good rather than just for his own paycheck. Right. Yeah. And so Mises has to defeat that argument. So what he does is as an anthropological argument. Yeah, so a as a psychological argument. So because one of the oldest arguments in in all of human history is the argument that collective property produces poor incentives. 
it goes all the way back to Aristotle's critique of Plato, right? Or, you know, and, and, and so we have this argument and the idea that communal property doesn't produce very good incentives and, uh, and whatnot. And as you've probably talked about on the show, we have plenty of experience with this. Like, say, for example, we just celebrated Thanksgiving and, yeah. you know, the discussion about the true meaning of Thanksgiving. So, it's not that that argument is – what Mises stresses, though, is that for the sake of argument, let's assume that you – you know, that this gentleman, you know, is transformed. This human being is transformed. The question is, how is it that the chickens are going to end up in the mouth of the comrades, right? Yeah. And so it's even if you had solved the incentive problem through some kind of heroic community Reform. spirit or reformation of humanity, the problem is, is that you're not going to have the – Ability to engage in the calculation about how to use scarce means to obtain the objective ends that you want. And so this is Mises' calculation argument. And he lays that out. That's why it's called economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth. And that is a, a linchpin argument against socialism claiming that socialism will have to do without economic calculation, which means that socialism will not be able to achieve its own ends. So the, It's a brilliant argument because unlike yeah. the sort of – the incentive argument is basically saying, you know, you're not going to get much output because people are going to free ride. Right. You know, they're going to take advantage of other people contributing. Everyone's going to try to do that. And as a result, people are going to loaf and output's going to be very small. Instead, he took the assumption they made that, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to be a new economic man. He's going to be able – and woman, they're going to work like crazy because they'll be – unlike the capitalist system where they're self-motivated, they're going to be motivated for the common good. He said even under that world, you've got a serious problem. Right. Yeah, and, and – Which became this the argument they lost on intellectually. Right. It wasn't the argument they lost on maybe in practice. Right. In practice, I think they lost because they didn't produce Couldn't the produce. goods. Yeah. <laughs> and there was an immense amount of loafing under the so-called um, yeah. uh, socialist revolution, but the the – Calculate the intellectual debate on the calculation problem became the central yeah. intellectual question of the twenties and thirties. Yes, and 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 it becomes a, a major issue later on after sure. Hayek interprets it in the way that modern economics developed in information economics yep. and 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 what knowledge as well. and society. But but you know Mises, I think I think the reason why Mises' argument is so important is because the vast amount of intellectuals thought at the time when they ever saw socialism fail in the past, it was always that we didn't try hard enough. Right, we didn't get the results. Yeah. And so it was always that socialism is a wonderful ideal, but humanity failed to live up to it. Whereas what Mises is pointing out is that socialism is a bad idea because it fails to live up to the demands that are required a for modern, humanity. A modern life. Yeah. A, a tribe, a family, that's one thing. Right. But, but a modern right. society of relative strangers in, in large numbers, yeah. you're not going to have that yeah. work what very he, well. What Mises later on develops is the notion of the what capitalism generates is what he calls uh, the, the social cooperation under division of labor. And the problem with uh, socialism is that the very mechanisms, institutional and economic mechanisms at work are not going to be able to generate that social cooperation and a division of labor. And it's that social cooperation and division of labor that's the source of our ability to have the shoes that you have without you knowing yeah. that, you know, who made those shoes for you or what, you know, Leonard Reed and then Milton Friedman later on made famous by holding up a pencil and saying, none of you know how to make this pencil. The reason why the pencil is able to access that vast amount of division of labor worldwide is because of the various price signals – 
What, you know, when, when I talk to my students now, I try to summarize the Mises point by saying, look, you need property prices and profit and loss. Yeah. And you have property prices and profit and loss give us incentives, information, and innovation. And without the three Ps, you can't get the three I's. If you don't have those three I's, you're not going to be able to make that pencil. The three right? I's are innovate. incentives, I- information, and innovation. Yeah. yeah. Now, he writes that paper in 1920. 20, yeah. The so-called socialist calculation debate takes place over space and time with Mises, Hayek on the side saying you've got a execution and logistics problem. And, Ro- and Robbins. Robbins. And Robbins, yeah. And on the other side, you have Abba Lerner. Yeah. Is the one that I know of. Who else is that important? Well, what happens is Mises publishes a book in 1922 called Socialism. And it has this huge impact among the people in his inner circle in the seminar back in Vienna, of which Robbins comes and visits and becomes a convert. And I'm going to just mention a lot of the books we're talking about here at Mises are available online and no charge at the Library of Economics and Liberty. We'll be putting links up to all of them. And again, we're going to get in a little bit to the question of which are the most influential ones and where might you start. So carry on. So he writes this book in 22. So again, he's German language debate. So his German language debate is with people like, for example, Jacob Marshak, and who so, becomes uh, a famous economist, right? and and you know, and, and so, but that's a debate that takes place in German. When when Hayek moves to the LSE, he becomes the representative in English. Again, Mises' book is not available in English yet, and his his article doesn't become available in English until Hayek brings it out in a collection called the Collectivist Economic Planning. So Hayek does a, a publishes a book in 1935, which is a summary of the calculation debate, all in English, called Collectivist Economic Planning, and Hayek writes. The introduction and the conclusion for that debate, and those bo- the, that volume, that volume, excuse me, and that's where this, de- you know, the position is laid out, and and Mises's argument. That's the first time it appears in English. So Hayek students. It's important to remember now. Oscar Long is not a student, but Abel Lerner is. Um, of who? Of, of Hayek. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's Hayek's student um, at the LSE. And uh, and 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 uh, Oscar Longa also tries to pick up the challenge uh, to um, uh, you know criti- take Mises's position and show Mises to be wrong on his own terms. So you have Longa trying to do that. You have um, you know um, uh, Lerner trying to do that uh, in the 1930s, and Hayek is the responder to that. But there's also uh, gentlemen like uh, Dickinson and some other people that were in the English language. It really became a kind of an LSE-centered debate with some discussion in the United States. Fred Taylor had published a paper on the use of marginalist principles in the socialism and under socialism, and and uh, and so basically the idea was is that in a Valrasian economy, uh, you know, there's no false trades take place. A Valrasian and, economy is a mathematically based world of n people and x yeah. goods and y. And and there's that we know that there's some conditions for per, under the conditions of perfect competition, which will lead to a situation where price will equal marginal cost. And output will be at that level, which minimizes average costs. And we know that we'll get exchange efficiency and production efficiency in that world, right? So what the market socialists did was they tried to use the marginalist principles as guide tools 
towards the socialist plan. They said we just need a big computer, yeah. which they didn't have at the time, but they imagined it. They said we just need to make – we have a lot of equations. We just need to input what people like right. and how much they make, how much they produce, and we'll put the relative prices in and figure out how much each person should get out of the – how many chickens this guy gets, and this guy right. doesn't like chicken, so we'll give him turkey or we'll right. give him vegetables. and Yeah, and so that's totally different from the original debate with Marxists. Right, who weren't going to right? Remember, the original debate was we're going to substitute production for direct production for exchange. We're going to get rid of and put in production for direct use. Now, what we're doing is we're actually saying, how can we get the socialist planner to mimic what the market would do if the market were operating, but we were in control of the market, which we and, might have to do because there really isn't going to be perfect competition, and we right. don't have all the conditions. Well, Langa actually makes an argument that socialism will be identical to capital, to pure theory of capitalism in theory, but in practice will outperform because in practice, real capitalism suffers from monopoly, monopoly. and business cycles. Sure. And you got to remember at this time, you have the burly mean stuff, which is about the separation of co- uh, ownership and control creates problems. So in the heads of someone like, like a, a learner, I'm uh, excuse me, Alanga, he's, he points in fact to that, the, the work That's by, we're in the forties at this point, right? No, no, we're burly in the thirties. Came out in the thirties. No, in the thirties. Yeah, their original the original discussions of that, and he points to that and says, "Look, see, capitalism suffers from a separation, of ownership, and control problem. They get their own so, incentive, yeah, problems, they, which, which of course it right. does. And yeah. so, and so they're going to be you know messed up, but we're going to be able to be in control and therefore be able to manage it, and we'll, we won't have the business cycle, and we'll be able to do this and." So that's now where Hayek has to jump in and then find the response to that. And that's how the relationship between Mises and Hayek is as well. So like I just got done teaching this semester my history of thought class and I said the way to understand the history of modern economics is to think of it in terms of debate partners and who it is that your debate partner is. And each time it switches, something all of a sudden changes. So think about it, like with, in your case, you, you know, you were educated at University of Chicago. Uh, you know, Milton Friedman was debating with different people than who Bob Lucas ended up by debating with. Right. Right? So Milton Friedman is talking in the beginning, you know, when we were, when we were all undergraduate students, Milton Friedman's main adversary is probably someone like Walter Heller. Correct. Right? And yeah. then all of a sudden you get later on, and then, you know, it's a different debate when you're talking about who Bob Lucas is trying to criticize. But, but similarly, even though Lucas and Friedman have lots of theoretical disagreements, they're on the same debate team. Yeah, <laughs> even, right. and, like, and I think like Keynes, like Hayek and Mises. Yeah, and, and I sense. think it's it's, it's and the certainly, same way. And certainly, Lucas would would proudly admit to being influenced by by Friedman in all kinds of ways right. uh, and, and learning from. And him. I think it's the same kind of thing here. And so Hayek is, you know, he's he's addressing in in and also Hayek. You ask about the. The question of why it is that Hayek becomes a person. Hayek also writes the journal article. Hayek is a 20th century economist. Mises, in a large part, always remains a 19th century economist, right? In the sense that he made his, he made his main contributions through books. Whereas Hayek is writing, he's editing Economica, he's writing journal articles. Like when we think about Hayek and you say, what do you think about Hayek? You might say the road to serfdom, but if you ask an economist, what do you think about Hayek? They'll use say the use of knowledge in society. society. So they'll pick a journal article, right? Mises is, is, is uh, writing these, these books and Hayek is writing journal articles and the debate takes place in journal articles back and forth. So I want to say, I want to say, I want to leave this and move on, but I, I think there are two things I think they're important. About this one, I never thought of before, which is, and I hope I remember the second. But the first is this calculation debate argument about whether socialism is superior to capitalism. 
it's taking place in the middle of capitalism's greatest crisis. Right. Yeah. And think about—I've never thought about this. So in the twenties, when 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 socialism is is very much on people's minds, we're in the post World War One was a very disillusioning event in in Europe and in the United States, but not as much in the United States. But in Europe, there's a huge disillusionment with the old order, and so people are looking for alternatives. There's this romance about socialism, and von Mises really Mises stands athwart that. Yeah. That train and says, stop, this isn't going to work, which is a very brave thing to do in 1922. But it's, it's good economic times, at least, it, for, for capitalism. In the 30s, they're still saying stop at a time when a lot of people are desperately looking for an alternative to capitalism. They're still saying this isn't it, right. uh, which I, I never thought about. The second point I want to make is, is important, for again, for those who aren't familiar with this episode of Intellectual History – Correct me if I'm wrong. This is one of the rare, very rare intellectual disputes where there's an immense amount of passion and intellectual effort and volume of words on both sides where there's a winner. The people who are representing the socialist side, they said, we lose. They, the wor- Certainly the world just picked a winner, which was Mises and Hayek and Robbins. But I think even the protagonists in the debate conceded that they lost. Is that correct? Well, that Lerner and Lange and, and those folks said, ultimately, we had the wrong view. Is that correct? You mean at the time? Not at the time. Eventually. After, re- eventually. Eventually. Yes. I mean, what happens is Robert Hallburner, for example, you know, writes a New Yorker article in the, in, after the collapse of communism in 1989 and says Mises was right. You know, which is an amazing thing to have. wrote a similar article in the late 90s saying that Hayek was right. This is the one thing we've learned is that markets work really well at most things. We we would disagree about where the most is (laughs) and what's left over, where the fraction is. But But I think we went through a very long period of time where uh, people believed that – that in fact the opposite position. Um, yeah, they're always more, the Soviet system works better, but they yeah. don't have as much freedom. Yeah, they, they, yeah. They, they, their economy is more efficient than ours. I have a which I've, was not true. I edited a nine-volume reference work, um, which is not available for free. <laughs> <laughs> it's a library work um, called the, uh, the uh, Socialism versus the Market, and it's a documentary history, basically of uh, the debate, the intellectual debate over. Um, economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth, uh, going back with excerpts from Marx and then Norrath and then developing Mises' argument and then going up and carrying it all the way to the modern period of time. Um, nine volumes, Routledge published it in so, around 2000. And, uh, and so this debate went on for a very uh, long period of time in which people thought – in a weird way, what happened was both sides declared victory. So Mises and Hayek never said that they lost the debate. They argued that the other side, you know, failed. And the other side argued Mises and Hayek lost the debate. And they can maintain that because there was not a lot of good data on how the Soviet Union was really doing. Well, and and as I've pointed out in my own work on this, what happened was the theoretical debate, you know, went into 
various different mathematical modeling exercises, and the empirical debate went into growth theory. So it actually became macroeconomics estimates of growth rates rather than the kind of microeconomic evaluations that Mises and Hayek would have wanted you to look at. Right. So, but our but what happened is the, our kind the of went onto a different turf. Yeah, what happened is our, our antidotal evidence, anecdotal, all, yeah. Uh, yeah, antidotal, excuse me, all sort of uh, you know fit with the Mises story. So like the the one ton nail kind of things, you know, which or is, like, you know, where what? the Soviet planners decide that they need a, a ton of nails, so the Soviet firm produces one giant ton <laughs> nail, right? Uh, and is that a true story? Or no, I mean, it's, it's, it's apocryphal, okay. and it's, a, it's something that they, they would make fun of themselves about themselves, because they would produce quali- the quality of the goods that were produced. I mean, when socialism collapsed, one of the things that we found out was the phenomenon of what's called negative value-added firms, firms in which the value of the inputs are greater than the value of the output puts that they go to produce which to me see you say i agree with you by the way that in the real world there's incentive issues that are overwhelming but there's also these calculational issues and i think this negative value added firm thing is a calculational issue they didn't have an idea of how to calculate the efficient use of resources yeah. in these things because they didn't have prices so, so yeah because they didn't, they didn't have, have prices. prices they didn't have they yeah they real they, prices real prices so um anyway so mises the socialist calculation debate becomes a central thesis and eventually what happens is Mises and Hayek come to understand that their conception of the nature of the market the like what it means to Hayek writes an essay called the meaning of competition and uh, Mises starts using the term and developing the term in analysis called the market process as opposed to equilibrium states of affairs. And that approach, analytical approach, follows on the heels of what they learned in their debate with other economists over socialism because what other economists were doing was going to the equilibrium end states and then saying, well, geez, if the equilibrium end state is defined as X – I can just say under socialism, let's assume X, and then we've mimicked what it is that capitalism would deliver. And Mises and Hayek said, no, 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 we have to explain how it is that X comes about, how it emerges from the exchange behavior of individuals. Because you can't really take tastes as given, you can't right. take endowments as given. That's all uh, – that's uh, an illusion that right. makes the math look nice, but in real practice could never be implemented. And so, you know, Hayek – The best piece on this, by the way, I think is Buchanan's very short – uh, note that we've we've linked to before. We'll put a link up to it where he, he really in a I think it's two pages really explains order defined in the process yeah. of its emergence. Yeah. yeah, and and Hayek, if you look at you know the use of knowledge, he says economics as a result the economic problem in society is a function of the introduction of change. And Mises also talks about change as opposed to statics and whatnot. And so that develops the more mature Austrian understanding of the market process, which then Israel Kirzner picks on and develops later on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna so, bring you back now. I, yeah, so we, we did money, on. we did socialism. I, correct my factual statement. Did the parti- or, or or endorse it, did the participants on the uh, on the socialist side, concede defeat or just the observers? Observers that like Heilbrunner at, at one time took that side, but did Lerner? No, because they were lifetime? already passed away. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because I over exaggerated. Well, that. no, I mean it, there's some evidence, for example, that Langa 
you know, we have conflicting stories on Longa, right? So, for example, Longa went back to be in charge of planning in Poland, but he never implemented his own model of market socialism because uh, he said, oh, no, it will never work. But then in 1967, he wrote an article where he says, if I had the debate with Hayek today, I'd say, what's the problem? I have this computer, and I'll just put it in a supercomputer. Yeah. So they get it, but they don't get it in some sense, okay. right? Yeah. Well, let's, let's leave that alone. And then, um, so I mentioned... I exaggerated. So we, I, got, we got two ideas so far. And I want to give you a third one. Okay. Which I, I think that Mises... We've got two and a half, I'd say, because in addition the to the social process, debate, yeah. we've got the, the whole way that the Austrian school and, and moderns look at the market process versus the, the Valrasian modern economist right. view of it's just a bunch of equations we got to solve. I would think the other thing that is, is uniquely Mises... Is great idea is the universal applicability of the economic way of thinking to human action outside of the market context. Mm-hmm. So when he wrote his book Human Action, um, he develops what he terms um, develops the subject as what he calls praxeology, which is if you take it literally, the study of human action, right? And this is the idea that um, the kind of ra- what we would call today rational choice analytics or the economic way of thinking applies to the realm of law, the realm of politics, the realm of religion, you know, all walks of life can be made sense of through the economic lens. That is the notion of purposeful human action. Some people have translated this uh, universal applicability into uh, pure choice theoretic model, right? In which case it's constrained optimization on all these That's Gary Becker. Yes, and, and there's an aspect of Mises' argument which goes along with that, but there's an aspect of Mises' argument in which the calculators are not necessarily mechanical. Yeah, right? perfect. So yeah. what happens is is that um, uh, I, I, I like to say that they're rash, it's a rational choice model as if the choosers were human. Um, a man named Which William, they are usually. Yeah, a man named William Jaffa uh, wrote a review about Menger and uh, Valras and and uh, Jevons early on many years ago, and he called Manger Jevons and Valras dehomogenized. And he sums up Manger's position. He says, "To Manger, man was not a lightning calculator of pleasure and pain." That was the critique of the standard optimization model. He says, "To Manger, man was caught between alluring hopes and haunting fears." And I've always liked that literary line. line. And I think that that it's it were purposive. Um, or another way to think about it is is that uh, Mises is postulating that human beings are capable but fallible. Yeah. Capable but fallible. And as a result, when you read like the first hundred pages of his treatise, Human Action, which I think is – personally, I think it's like the greatest book ever written in economics, but that reflects my biases. We're going to come to that um, in a sec. But, a uh, to wax more on that. Go ahead. But uh, uh, the first hundred pages of that is both lays out the logic of economic action – but at the same time, this idea of the opening up of the choice dilemma that individuals face that deals with uncertainty and uh, the coping with our ignorance that allows for the role that institutions play in helping us ameliorate our uncertainty and our ignorance. So the notions of property rights, how various different economic environments, ecology, will force and channel our behavior such that um, they matter rather than the idea that it's just that we are these uh, robots that make these choices and therefore could succeed under any conceivable set of environments. And so I think that that Mises is both 
generates the and, and I think there's good history of thought textual evidence on this. So for example, when you look at Buchanan's original pieces on applying the economic way of thinking to the area of voting voting and whatnot, he 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 has right in there footnotes to Mises. When you look at Henry Manny and he's developing his ideas on the sort of the market for corporate control and things like that, he has footnotes about Mises and developing these ideas. So me, these guys all read Human Action because um, it came out in 1949. They were educated in English. In English. And even uh, Vernon Smith has say, pointed yeah. out that Mises' book came out and was very influential on the way – it became part of the way they think the background of their ideas. So I like to think of modern history of economics as, as having a, a, a kind of a, a critical nodal point of decisions, which is in the late 1940s. And on the one hand, you have Samuelson's book comes out, Foundations. 1948. And, yeah, and then you have Mises and Hayek's Individualism and Economic Order, that's Hayek's book, and then Human Action by Mises. They come out in 48, 49, respectively. And what happens is that economics sort of basically, neoclassical or modern economics splits in some sense, and one, di- one direction moves towards an institu- institutionally antiseptic theory. That's Samuelson. That's Samuelson, whereas the other one is one in which institutions, so it's choice, Individual choice, filter, institutional filter, and then an understanding of economic outcomes. And the heavy lifting is done by comparative institutional analysis. And that's the focus on rules, the focus on property rights, the focus on the institutions within the market that enable entrepreneurship or in- impede entrepreneurship. And the imperfection of psychology, yes. of the human yes. being, right. of, of knowledge and, and the ability to transmit yeah. knowledge, transactions costs. Right. All that is, is in, in this the other Hayekian tradition. That's what I would argue, and therefore, you know, you see things like, you know, all the way from F. A. Hayek, like for example, Nobel Prize, Jim Buchanan's Nobel Prize, Doug Norris' Nobel Prize. Uh, I'm getting out of out of order here. Uh, you know, uh, Ronald Coase's Nobel Prize, Vernon Smith's, you know, Nobel Prize, but also in the in between, you know, Alman Alchin, Harold Demsetz, you know, uh, Mansur Olson, Yale Brosen, a b- bunch of people who didn't win Nobel Prize, but were great, great economists, great yeah. important people in that tradition in the Mises High tradition. And those and that tradition has always has been since the 1940s recognized but marginalized. So it's right. recognized but marginalized in some. It's not the it's not the flashier, sexier, glamorous part of the profession. But when you think about but like, still, but it's still recognized. Yes. It's hard to remember. And and what, it's easy to forget. And what you have to remember is that whenever the debates really the rubber hits the road on these big debates, it comes back with a vengeance. So it was no surprise, for example, when socialism starts to crack up, that all of a sudden everyone's talking about the role of institutions and property rights and why that matters. Because why? Because that society was a society which in fact didn't have institutions and whatnot and or had institutions but they weren't the right weren't institutions yeah. and then and then when we have problems of fiscal imbalance then all of a sudden Buchanan's work on the incentives within fiscal policy making yeah. everything matter and then when we have you know obviously inflationary uh, you know issues and the problem of inflationary expectations and the lack of fiscal stimulus and all these things all those arguments come back again to the forefront so it's it's they've been recognized but marginalized but but they always seem to find a way to raise their ugly head right in the middle of the most important sort of debate. So to give you a quick example on this. You meant uh, beautiful head, but go ahead. Yeah, 
Yeah, what did I say? You said ugly, but uh, not ugly to you. So yeah, yeah, you like yeah, it. Yeah, but it's no, it's no. Not... I meant the environment is it's raises. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, yes, but I do mean a beautiful head. But if you think about, it, if you go back and look at uh, the news, the Newsweek article that appeared, or the article that they talked about you in the Economist. And you go back to 1970s when we were having stagflation, similar type of articles about Hayek appeared then. Uh-huh. So it, it's not – now, it is true that he won the Nobel Prize in 74, and so he was the, you know, the flavor of the day in some sense. It was a quiet sense. Nobel Prize. Yeah, it was it, a quiet – didn't, It didn't produce a groundswell of graduate students <laughs> right. using his work to write their PhD theses. That's, I think, what yeah. – when you say recognized but marginalized uh, – you know, I read as a first year grad student in 1976. I read the Use of Knowledge in Society, but I was at the University of Chicago. Most people, most grad students, yes. never it, at the top programs, never read an article by Hayek or Mises ever, right. and and don't and still don't. Uh, they're well, out of they're out of fashion. Yeah, but you're, as you point out correctly, they may be out of fashion, but they're not forgotten, yeah. and they come back to play a role. In all kinds of and ways, and if you know, and if you know a lot about their work, you see it in other marginalized but recognized people. So, for example, um, if you look at Lynn Ostrom's work that that uh, on property rights and whatnot, you can see arguments that she derives to a large extent, maybe from Armin Alchin. But Armin Alchin got a lot of those arguments from you know Hayek. You know, in Mises or whatever. So there's like a kind of a, a, chain. a six, what's the six degrees of separation yeah. kind of yeah. rule. And so you just have to be very, you know, excited about that. So anyway, just to say, so I would say in terms of contributions, I would look at Mises' contributions on business cycle theory, Mises' contributions on the critique of socialism and derivative of that, his further and more mature understanding of the market as a dynamic process of entrepreneurial discovery. And then finally, his overarching sort of analysis of the pursuit of economics logic or the logic of economics in areas outside of the market. So the development of public choice, the development of law and economics, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, the, the development of what might be called today modern institutional economics. A lot of all of that has its antecedent, I think is the right word, in, in Mises's idea. And, and I think if you think in terms of this split decision that took place – so either move in an institutionally antiseptic, formal theory direction, or in an institutionally laden sort of economics in which you interact between the theory of human action with the institutional contingencies to deal with our imperfections and our ignorance and our, uh, our uh, the uncertainties of the world that steer dynamic behavior in direction. So – that's a great. It, yeah. yeah. So I you know, economics is about exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. That's very Smithian. Mises and Hayek are the modern Smithians in that regard. It's the the man's propensity to truck barter and exchange, not man settling in on the equilibrium point, yeah. right? Yeah. Let's uh we're getting low on time. Let's talk about his most important works, which we've touched on of course in this conversation. What are his most important books? Well, it's an interesting question that you ask. Uh, Mansur Olson, uh, I used to 
be involved with uh, the center that Mansur ran, ran at, at University of Maryland. And he one time asked me, he said, you're always talking about this Mises. He says, I understand if I'm going to talk about Hayek that I'll get use of knowledge in society. But what is it that I'm going to read about Mises? And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, this is a really difficult question because I'm now going to recommend a 1,000-page book. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and he, it's, it's not what he wants. Yeah. So I guess if you so said... We're, we're going to get to the... Don't get to the guide yet. Let's no, first I'm, talk about... No, so I'm saying if you, if you, I, I think that there's an argument to be made that his economic calculation in a socialist commonwealth, uh, uh, article is the single greatest article that he wrote. Uh, and so if people want to get a sense of, you know, the logic of Mises as a, as an economist, pure economist, that probably is, you know, his um, his best article uh, published in 1920. Um, it's unbelievable, actually, the 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 way in which he commu- you know gets across his idea. And keep in mind the logic of what he's doing because he's trying to get across not a normative argument, but a completely positive economic argument about why it is that the most appealing normative idea of his zeitgeist is fundamentally wrong. And so there's this sort of amazing kind of um, connection to that. And then I think that there are some essays that he wrote um, on the manipulation of money and credit, which you can get. There's uh, the Ebeling collection that I mentioned at Liberty Fund, the Selected Works of Mises, has some essays that he wrote. And then some of his more popular books later on in life – uh, sort of economic policy. Uh, these are all Liberty Fund has these books. Um, they the essays that are in that can communicate the idea of of inflation. His his strong argument about inflation. But those are what you tell people to start with, which I, which yeah. I, we're out of order. Okay, talk, sorry. Talk about his what are his most important. Uh, most the important the most books. important book that he did was Human Action. Human Action, and then Socialism. And then theory of money and credit. Okay, so those three, which are all available online at Library of Economics and Liberty. Sorry, I, I did, misunderstood okay. the question. So those three, but the problem, and Hayek's got his own problem. I hope we'll do another podcast on that sometime. But the problem is, as you say, if, if you've been in, turned on by this conversation and you want to learn more about Mises' ideas, uh, Human Action is a daunting yeah. book. It's it's a thousand pages. Yeah. It's um, and it's not a. Easy read. It's not, it's, not, it's not a thousand pages of Robert Ludlum-like prose. So uh, would you recommend that someone try to wade through that to start with? No, I mean, I, first of all, I think any attempt to read Human Action is awesome. So I would recommend that. But I do think there's ways to get the core argument to prepare yourself for maybe wanting to understand and read that. One of them is actually is that – Murray Rothbart's Man, Economy, and State is a very readable translation in some sense of that work into a more modern English prose and a more plain language approach. So to me, Man, Economy, and State is a masterful work. It has its own unique contributions, which we could talk about on a different thing. But just a straight-up economics, he makes Mises very, very plain. If you if that's too daunting for you, because that also is a huge book. Henry Hazlitt <laughs> is a very good introduction to Mises as well in like the econo- e- economics in one lesson. So you know the understanding of the way in which Mises does that. Mises himself, I think, a book like Liberalism um, is very readable, very short in the scheme of things and it gets right to the kind of issues of liberalism and the relationship between economic theory and 
uh, classical liberalism that a lot of listeners on this show and, and readers at Econ Law uh, Liberty or whatever would be interested in. The other uh, thing is I would say between the three books that I mentioned, Theory of Money and Credit, Socialism, and Human Action, that Theory of Money and Credit is in, a, in some sense Mises' most technical work in economics. It's very, very demanding in terms of your ability to understand monetary theory and the history of monetary theory. It rewards you tremendously if you read it, especially in our current context, because that's what's going on around us today. And Mises' really book is just as lively today, but it is technical economics. And it's challenging because the terminology isn't you know, quite the same as what we use and yeah and it's 1912 and yeah. then you know okay and then human action is daunting because it's a mix both of refined points in economic theory mixed with a kind of ideological fervor that's a product of its age meaning that you have right on the heels of nazism you have the development of sort of the interventionist economies in the West because they're going the wrong way. Mises used to say that he started out to be a theorist and he became a historian of decline. And so the book has that kind of rhetoric. I happen to, because I believe, I agree with him, I find the rhetoric charming, but it, you know, someone like Israel Kirzner has spent his entire career trying to cull out of Mises the technical economics of the market process without the rhetoric of why the Fuhrer is horrible or whatever. But socialism, I think, the and book, if, and so, the book. right? And and remember, I mean, that's my background, right? So there's a little bias here. But to me, socialism is just this amazing intellectual achievement that sits between both worlds in some sense. You have uh, the technical economics of theory of money and credit, and the more broad sweeping economics of human action. And then you have this book, Socialism, which is an economic and sociological analysis, that's the subtitle, of this grand idea in which Mises is taking his opponents extremely seriously. He's trying to defeat them with logic and evidence, right? And he's taking them on. And to me, it's a, it's an amazing achievement uh, of the human mind and that I would recommend to any of the readers to like pick that book up and, re and, and, and wrestle with it. Um, I think it's, I think it's very well translated so that the English in it is extremely easy to read. Um, I think it stays focused, right? It doesn't try to make a contribution on every area of economics. It stays focused and it deals with a topic that we still care about. There's discussions in there on the nature of the family and, you know, nature of, you know, sort of what would we now would call like uh, green economies kind of thing. You know, there's those kind of issues. All of that stuff is right there. Uh, Mises will talk about, you know, the value of a waterfall and, you know, and then talk about the problem in calculation with that and the nature of property rights. You know, sort of the the real bottom line is that his syllogism, you know, without private property and the means of production, there'll be no market for the means of production. Without a market for the means of production, there'll be no prices for those means of production. Without prices reflecting relative scarcities, there's no way for the economic planner to be able to allocate scarce resources among the competing ends, right? That syllogism is then played out across all kinds of various different efforts at socialism in a way that I think is really a magisterial uh, treatment and I so I would recommend socialism. I think it's just a little bit of a different twist today because I think most people that would sit in this chair would tell you theory of money and credit today after we get off of human action because it's about today, right? That's what we're going through. But it's not so accessible. Yeah, and socialism. I think is more accessible and still passionate and everything like that. But then again, liberalism. 
Another is, book. It's just, yeah, his book, Liberalism, uh, is just amazing. In the 1920s, Mises wrote three books, uh, Socialism, Liberalism, and a critique of interventionism. And he tried to go at each of the systems, right? So he's, he argued socialism is impossible. Interventionism is unstable, therefore undesirable. And liberalism, he tries to show, is both desirable, stable, leads to prosperity, all these things like that. So it's a trifecta there, yeah. right? And so, but he, he goes, there's not many alternatives, right? You have socialism. And then his next book on the. Uh, and his, know, by liberalism, he meant. Well, Our liberalism, yeah, but, you know, the classical liberalism of limited government. a society of free and responsible individuals, private property. He says liberalism can be summed up in one word or one you know, phrase, one, term, yeah. one phrase, private property, and the consistent and persistent application of that. And then what happens is when he comes, you know, in 1940, he publishes, in 44, he publishes The Omnipotent Government, which is his critique of the Nazi state. So you have basically, Mises is a comparative systems economist. He's going to analyze socialism. He's going to analyze, you know, uh, interventionism, which a version of that is the manipulation of money and credit in the business cycle. He's going to analyze liberalism, and he's going to analyze fascism. And so you have the whole gambit of, of systems there and and just you know just this wealth and wonderful insights I think my guest today has been Pete Betke Pete thanks for being part of Econ Talk thank you Russ this is Econ Talk part of the Library of Economics and Liberty for more Econ Talk go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.